News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC, the New Yorker's podcast for the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city. I'm Harry Siegel, here with Christina Greer and Katie Honan. And joining us right now is former New York State Governor Andrew Cuomo, who resigned from office a year ago as of next week. Um, and after spending Prince Voice time engaging in something called life, he's been returning to the public arena with a podcast of his own called The Matter of Fact forthcoming Gun Safe America project, and more. He has his uh, campaign war chest, uh, he's been putting out advertisements since resigning. And Cuomo, who's also the HUD secretary, is with us now to discuss, among other things, his concerns about the state of American cities. And at a moment when Lee Zeldin's fear city message about NYC as a hellscape seems to be resonating with the disturbing number of New Yorkers. Let's start, though, with the elephant in the room, and I'm going to squeeze in a few questions here since we've got a lot of other things to get through. Uh, Mr. Cuomo, when you resigned as governor, uh, you said you'd chosen to do so for the good of the people in New York. More recently, you know, you've said that you were, in effect, pushed out as governor um, and the governor who passed a really good law strengthening New York's protections against workplace harassment. And then amid the investigations into your personal behavior, you've spoken at a few points about the lessons you learned and your regrets about how your actions to women who work for you were perceived by them. More recently, and amid pending litigation, you've said you did nothing wrong. I'd love to know how you square all that. And last thing here, we had Scott String on the podcast a little time ago. He was saying, I wish I'd had a Cuomo report as allegations about his past behavior derailed his mayoral campaign in the middle of it before those were really investigated. Those sort of knocked him out of contention. And so lastly there, I know that's a, a few different questions. Uh, you know, I, I love to know how you think the Democratic Party is doing with policing its own and handling these sorts of allegations fairly or otherwise. Uh, well, Harry, the, the, there is a lot there. I don't know if it's the elephant in the room, maybe the donkey in the room. But uh, mm -hmm. suffice to say, the uh, it is uh, my situation was a highly political situation, uh, and uh, I don't believe the uh, situation was ever dealt with on the merits. I believe it was uh, handled politically with a lot of personal politics. Uh, a lot of democratic politics in the mix. Uh, and this is a very emotional topic and a sensational topic for the Democratic Party. And you're right, uh, I passed the most aggressive sexual harassment law uh, in the United States, and I'm proud of it. The uh, people can have their own interpretation as to what is appropriate behavior. Uh, I can say what you just said I found offensive. Uh, and that's my opinion. And I've always said, look, if anyone ever found anything I said or did offensive, uh, I apologize for that because I never meant to offend anyone. That's a different question than did you do something wrong? Did you violate the sexual harassment law? Right. Uh, nobody wants to offend anyone. I never wanted to offend anyone. Uh, 
if anyone took any offense, I apologize. Different question. Did you do something wrong? Did you violate the sexual harassment law? No, I didn't. Uh, so that's why they were two very different questions. As you know, I filed an ethics complaint against the attorney general. Uh, I don't know how uh, an attorney who said she had an interest uh, or wouldn't rule out running against me uh, then becomes an impartial uh, finder of fact uh, as time has gone on the report has been uh, discredited. Uh, it went to six district attorneys, Democrats, Republicans, upstate, downstate, uh, and uh, the DAs found no cases. So yeah, I was highly political. It is uh, an emotional topic. Uh, they used to talk about the third rail of politics, but uh, I think this this issue uh, for the Democratic Party, rightfully so, uh, stirs very strong emotions, and it was highly politicized in my case. But uh, I have a passion for public service, and I've done it all my life. I think these are very difficult times that we're in now, uh, complicated times. I think the city's in trouble. I think the state's in trouble. I think the nation is in trouble. Uh, and I've been in the federal government, I've been in local government, I've been in state government, run not-for-profits <clears throat> since I've been in my 20s. Any way I can help, I want to help. And that's why I'm talking to you, and that's why I'm doing the podcast, and that's why I'm, I continue to work on the gun issue, which I've worked on for 30 years. Uh, and that's why I believe who we elect to office is very important. So, Governor, thanks so much for joining us. I have some more Current questions. Um, are, where are you registered to vote now? Westchester County. Have you already voted? Yes. Who, do you mind? Would you tell me who you <laughs> voted for, for governor? I voted for Kathy Hochul. On which party line? Uh, on the Democratic Party line. Okay. The, uh, I think uh, Lee Zeldin who's obviously the Republican candidate, uh, is wholly out of sync with uh, what New Yorkers believe on uh, basic social issues. The issue of a woman's right to choose uh, is a basic issue, not just for women in New York State, uh, but for all New Yorkers. Uh, as you may remember, I passed a law uh, several years ago protecting a woman's right to choose in New York. Uh, and it was the most uh, aggressive law protecting a woman's right to choose. The editorial boards all criticized me because they said there's no reason for state law because Roe v. Wade will never be overturned. Uh, so this was just a, uh, a political gesture, which was unnecessary. That was just like four years ago. Mm -hmm. And then the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade. Uh, right. The issue of gun safety, where this country still hasn't passed 
a meaningful gun law. Senate passed the bill. They celebrated the fact that they passed the bill. Uh, but I think it was uh, uh, not anything near the bill we needed. Remember, we passed an assault weapon ban in 1994. Uh, and we can't even pass an assault weapon ban now. New York, we passed an assault weapon ban. Uh, Mr. Zeldin uh, doesn't support the gun safety position of New Yorkers. We were the first big state to pass marriage equality. Uh, you have the Supreme Court now saying they'll overturn marriage equality. So you have a woman's right to choose. You have the gun laws. <clears throat> you have marriage equality. These are basic New York values. I bet you 70% of New Yorkers uh, hold these positions. So uh, I just think Mr. Zeldin is fundamentally out of step mm -hmm. with what New Yorkers believe. Not to mention election deniers, January 6th, et cetera. Well, anyone who listens to this podcast knows that <laughs> I feel very strongly with you on that. Before I, I kick it over to, to Katie, though, Governor, I do want to ask just one quick follow-up. Uh, so you've already voted. You voted for Kathy Hochul. Who did you, did you vote for Tish James for Attorney General? Uh, I don't want to get into who I voted across okay. the board, but I do feel strongly that uh, my advice to New Yorkers is that they elect Kathy Hochul. I think uh, Mr. Zeldin is just not representative of what New Yorkers believe on fundamental social issues and values. Gotcha. If I could ask what you say, what you just said about uh, Lee Zeldin and why he isn't good for New York, why do you think his message, which is solely about crime in New York State and New York City specifically, why do you think it resonates so well with so many New Yorkers? Obviously, we don't know what the ultimate election results will be yet, but it, it's a message that really seems to be working for him. Why, why do you think it is? Because it's a legitimate issue. Because it is a legitimate issue. I did uh, my podcast last week. I went out on the street and I talked to New Yorkers. First, every, every pollster that you put on, you talk to, right? And you, you turn on any uh, TV show, every pollster says the same thing. Uh, and if the issue is about uh, crime and inflation, the Republicans win. Uh, if it's about social issues, the Democrats win. Uh, and the Democrats, after the Roe v. Wade decision, assumed it was going to be about all, all about abortion, et cetera. And then this crime inflation issue uh, escalated and it favors the Republicans. That's where we are. So when Mrs. Eldon talks about crime, Yes, it resonates. I went out on the street. I talked to New Yorkers. Every New Yorker in New York City, every New Yorker said their primary issue was crime. I mean, I was amazed. Uh, Native New Yorkers, people who come commute from Long Island, from New Jersey, uh, women, men, they all said crime. So... Yes, it resonates. The mayoral race in Los Angeles, Karen Bass, who's a great candidate, in my opinion, it's all about crime. Uh, and crime blurs, right? Crime is crime. Crime is quality of life. Crime is homelessness. Crime is 
uh, mentally ill people. Uh, and people say, I feel afraid. Now, in my opinion, when somebody says, I feel afraid, the answer, this is a national democratic issue. The answer is not, you shouldn't feel afraid. You're wrong to feel afraid. Your feeling is wrong. Statistically, crime hasn't gone up. Uh, your feeling is wrong because uh, of X, Y, Z. And that's what a lot of Democrats across the country wind up saying. You're wrong to feel afraid. I don't think that you can say that to someone. You can say it, but it never turns out well, right? <laughs> In any relationship, to deny the person's feeling. It is a legitimate feeling if they have it. Uh, and again, it's not just New York City, it's across the country. People feel afraid. Now, my query is, I don't know why the Democrats can't speak to it more aggressively. You can be both. Uh, look, as governor, nobody passed more progressive criminal justice reforms than I did. Raised the age of criminal liability. I closed more prisons than any governor in the history of the state of New York. More alternatives to incarceration, more programming in prisons, uh, ended abuses in prisons around extended uses of solitary confinement, et cetera. So, yes, I'm progressive on criminal justice. But, yes, public safety is job one, and people have to feel safe. And the majority of victims of crime uh, happen to be poor people, happen to be uh, black people in communities of color. Uh, so uh, I don't know why the Democratic Party can't forcefully say, yes, we're progressive on criminal justice. Yes, we believe public safety is a top priority. Yes, if you are afraid, that is an issue that we must address. So just to follow up on that very quickly, um, you signed the uh, the bail reform law that ended cash bail in New York and like a number of the other uh, justice reforms that Lee Zeldin has been running against. Do you want to speak a little about the uh, the importance of those reforms? And I'd also I just love to know you ran three times. There was not nail biting uh, in November on Election Day. Uh, like we're feeling this year, and uh, as the Post and others have been beating this drum about how close the race is, uh, Wieselden has a pretty clear message, uh, vote like your life depends on it. Uh, it's a fear message, um, and it relates to people who think perceive crime is getting worse and things is getting more dangerous. Uh, Kathy Hochul, Maybe because uh, Hasty, the, the leader of the assembly, feels very strongly about bail reform, you know, isn't able to speak clearly just about what her message is. She's just pivoting to public safety now. Maybe this is harder because she's a woman. But I am just interested in, in, in your view of which of these reforms need to be, should be uh, defended and praised and how in the course of doing that, a Democratic candidate for governor 
uh, could speak in a more compelling way about crime and maintaining public safety. Let's unpack this a little bit, please, uh, Harry. It's not just the New York Post, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you have written on this topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I talked to New Yorkers on the street the other day. As I said, every New Yorker says the issue is crime. I'm afraid. So it's not. Let's not say this is just a political issue. Uh, are the Republicans politically exploiting the issue? Yes. Yes. But there is a legitimate feeling of people that they feel afraid and they feel crime uh, is, quote unquote, out of control, whatever that means. And as I said, if people feel it, perception is reality. If people feel it, it is real. Uh, and it's also dangerous because. Not only is it dangerous for victims of crime, it is dangerous for a city, especially at this point in time, uh, when people are debating whether or not to go back to the office, uh, when people are debating whether or not to leave the city, right? Uh, The elephant in the room, you want to pick an elephant instead of a donkey. The elephant is, we're in a post-COVID world. and. COVID, I believe, is a fundamentally transformative factor uh, for this country, and especially for cities. Cities are economic entities, right? You mentioned I was HUD secretary, Housing and Urban Development. Cities are economic entities. Uh, That's how they formed. They were the uh, stops on the way out west uh, in horse and buggy. They were then the train stops. They were then the ports. They were then the places of factories on rivers. They have an economic function. When COVID says you no longer have to go to a city to work, uh, or if you have to go to a city, you don't have to go five days a week. You can go one day a week, or you can go two days a week. That fundamentally changes the equation for a city. So I don't have to go there anymore to work. So now it's a question of, do I want to go there? Uh, And now my options are much broader. Do I want to go to a city where it snows? Maybe I want to go to a city where it's warm, right? We had generations of New Yorkers who they retired, they moved to Florida. Uh, Why? Because they retired. They didn't have to go to work anymore in the city. They didn't have to be in New York. They go to Florida and they enjoy the sunshine. Well, if you don't have to go to work in the city, do you then accelerate people choosing locations with different climates? Uh, If they don't have to go to a city, they now you you need them to want to go to the city. And now you need a safe city or a a city that people perceive as safe. Uh, You want them to go there for the attractions and the culture and the restaurants, et cetera, because they don't have to go there for work. So this is a pivotal moment for cities in this post-COVID world. And when you then put the issue of fear of crime on top of it, you are compounding the, the issue. 
Um, and uh, I think for the Democratic Party, just start with the acknowledgement of the obvious. If people say they are afraid of crime, they are afraid of crime. Start with that, Harry. Is it because of these primaries, these elections are decided in primaries, not not for governor, but for all these smaller races where, where you're, you're looking at base voters for the party, that Democrats are having so much trouble acknowledging this, at least in part? I, I think that may be the calculus. Look, you have, you have the substance of criminal justice policy, and then you have the politics of criminal justice policy. And they're two different things. Uh, in this environment, we're talking about the politics of criminal justice policy. And we're talking about it not only in terms of Democrat versus Republican and Democratic primaries, but you're also talking about it in a post-George Floyd context. And uh, I think that had a dramatic effect on the politics of criminal justice. Uh, the nation saw a horrific scene with Mr. George Floyd. And there was a reaction. Uh, and there still is a reaction. And the quote-unquote defund the police movement, uh, police abuse movement, uh, or feeling, that it was very real, is very real. Uh, there was then an effect on the police and how they behaved. And you can argue they're more cautious. You can argue uh, that's a good thing. You can argue that they're paralyzed. Uh, and I think that's a topic that we actually have to delve into, which is very hard because it's an emotional topic. Uh, but what has the effect been on the police? What has the effect been on the public in a post-George Floyd uh, world? And I think that has made this conversation difficult, especially for Democrats. Uh, but I think if it winds up where Democrats wind up denying the problem, that doesn't work politically. And it doesn't work substantively, because if people are afraid to go into a city, you have a problem. The city has a problem. And saying you're wrong to be afraid is not going to work. Acknowledge the fear, acknowledge the problem, and then we can even discuss the solution. You know, I don't, I don't think people are even saying now, uh, I debate your solution. They're saying, I debate your non-recognition of the problem. Uh, and then on solutions, you know, is it more police? Is it different police? Is it more MTA police? Is it police in the subways? Uh, is it safe, uh, safe cities, safe streets? David Dinkins? Peter Vallone, Governor Mario Cuomo, 54% increase in the number of police on patrol. That was Peter Vallone, David Dinkins, Mario Cuomo, 54% increase. By the way, 
it it in yours to the benefit of Rudy Giuliani, who gets credit for quote unquote cleaning up the city. I'm not speaking to the other Mr. Siegel, Harry. Only you and I will understand and appreciate. Who who would note that Dinkins took an extra year? to take the money to actually get the new recruitment class out. And that was very politically beneficial, as you know, for, for Rudy Giuliani in saying that this hadn't counted. Yes, I understand that. But, uh, and we can quibble details, but safe streets, safe cities was Peter Vallone, David Dinkins. Indeed. The state passed it, financed it, 54% increase in police. Is that what we should be talking about now? And you can have that conversation. And it'll be an intelligent conversation, and you have to get the emotion down so people can speak about the substance. But the first step is admit the problem. Denial is not an option in life. You will never solve a problem you deny. And uh, I think that's always the first step. And forget the politics. And forget the, the, the consequences on the race. People are saying to you, tall people, short people, white people, black people, Democratic people, Republican people, I'm afraid of the feeling I get in the city. Address it. So, so Governor, you know, and that's real, and obviously Zeldin's been hammering that home, and Kathy Hochul, um, you know, we can debate as to how effective she's been. I always I'm curious to know your thoughts on sort of a candidate in the candidate phase or an elected in the candidate phase and an elected in the governance phase. And so as as a professor, I'm always interested in what grade someone would would give. What would you give Kathy Hochul? What grade would you give her as a candidate and what grade would you give her as uh, a sitting governor? Look, well, now we are in a political environment, right? And elections are relative decisions. And as I said before, I just think Mr. Zeldin uh, is wholly non-representative of what New Yorkers believe. Uh, so I don't even believe there's a question. Uh, Governor Hochul has had a relatively short period of time to serve. And I don't really see, Professor, you know, I am not that keen on this difference between a candidate and a governor. You know, the, uh, yeah, in the campaign, you know, my father's line was a campaign in poetry, government prose. Uh, but I think more and more, what you say in a campaign is what you're supposed to do when you govern. And the differential is problematic. Uh, I did what I said I was going to do. You know, what I said in the campaign was the report card that I expected to be graded upon. And you will be graded upon. You don't get away with saying one thing in a campaign and then doing something totally different uh, in office. Uh, I also believe people, especially New Yorkers, they want performance. They want performance. They are bottom line oriented people. And that transcends party and it transcends race. They want people who deliver for them. 
uh, and we've had a lot of mayors, we've had a lot of governors. The when you have real issues, they're going to judge you on the merits. On the old cards, there were two different grades. You got a grade for effort, and then you got a grade for substantive performance. Right? You tried very hard, but you failed math. Those are two different concepts. I think New Yorkers, especially in this type of environment, they uh, discount that uh, whether or not you tried hard. You're supposed to try hard. Uh, that goes, that's just part of the definition of the job. Uh, they're going to look at your performance. Did you deliver? And that's where they are now. You know, they want results. They want results on crime. They want results on taxes. They want results uh, on inflation because they're feeling the pain and they want the pain to stop. So uh, I don't see a, a difference, Professor, really campaign and governance. And I think there's so much information out there now that they really do get a sense of whether or not you got something done. Uh, you know, who cleaned up the city? Uh, was it David Dinkins? Was it Rudy Giuliani? Um, you know, uh, they want results. And I firmly believe that they not only do they deserve results, but I believe if government performs, it will be the ultimate liberation for progressives. In other words, I believe people are basically well-intentioned. And then we say, well, government is the vehicle to enact those good intentions. And then people say, well, that's where you lose me. I don't think government actually performs those good intentions. I believe if you could actually make government work and show people that it worked, that people would be much more supportive and society would be much more progressive. That's why I was always very careful to, if I said I was going to do it, then I wanted to do it. I said I was going to pass marriage equality. By the way, after it had just failed in Albany and Democrats, voted against it. Democrats. I said I was going to pass marriage equality. I did. I said I was going to raise the minimum wage. I did. I said I was going to pass the best gun control law in the nation. I did. Uh, I said I was going to open the second avenue subway. I did. You can see the second avenue subway. You can see LaGuardia Airport. You can see Moynihan train station. You can see new bridges. And then you say, you know what? Government can work. Government can work. And people want to believe that. So, pot is legal in New York now. Take a deep breath here. And as I'm hearing you, you're saying that uh, restoring confidence in the city and a sense of public safety is necessary to get to 
a better future at a difficult moment after the shutdown. Um, you know, as train ridership is still down, office occupancy, people are questioning why they have to be in cities, all that. Uh, but that confidence is probably not sufficient to articulate a new vision for what New York is for, how people use it in difficult fiscal times with some people leaving, all of that. So going back to cities for a minute, generally speaking, and with New York in particular, which is a super city, so maybe it's different. What is the the affirmative vision? What are the things, the tangible things that, that government needs to create now? Uh, that are going to give people confidence in that? And what is just the vision of a city and why people are going to want to be there going forward? Ah, $64,000 question. (laughs) And it is uh, in process. It is evolving. What is the new role of a city in a post-COVID world where the primary function is not a work location. That's the question. And it has never been answered before because we've never been here before. First, the city has to be hospitable. Uh, And that gets you back to crime and that gets you to quality of life and that gets you to homelessness and that gets you to a mass transit system that works less traffic, you know, uh, the traffic is incredible, partially because of vehicle traffic, partially because people don't want to take mass transit. Uh, So it has to be hospitable as step one. And then uh, I believe the future of a city is people like to be with people. Uh, There's an energy when people are with people. Uh, People like to be entertained. People like culture. People like to be educated. They like to go to museums. They like to go to theaters. They like to go to plays. And a city as the center of that energy, the cultural energy, the entertainment energy, the interaction energy. Uh, Yeah, you can sit on Zoom uh, all day long. I believe there is something to people wanting to be with people. And... Uh, I think the future of the cities are going to be around that. And I don't have to go to work. Yes, but if it's a nice environment and I feel good about it, I may want to go into the office, right? I don't want to during COVID because I'm afraid. But in a post-COVID world and when these variants stop popping up, Uh, I like to go into the office. I like to sit into a conference room and bounce ideas off people. Uh, And I think we can get back to that if it's hospitable and safe and clean, et cetera. But can you make a case that cities will be diminished when they are no longer the primary location for work? Yes, you can make that case. And I don't think we know yet. And I think it depends on what we do. Um, Andrew, I, I have a, a, a sort of a question, a, a political question. And I guess it's taking a look into two twofold question. The first part of it is, you know, you led the, the state's Democratic Party for over a decade. 
And, you know, looking at these polls for the governor's race and some other uh, races, there seems to be some sort of disrepair within that. Um, do you feel that you bear any responsibility for that? Maybe the sort of disarray with you resigning and and someone else coming in and all these other issues. And, and what are your thoughts on, on the New York Dems now? And then I'll have a follow up. Uh, look, uh, I am very. I'm very proud of my tenure. And you can say, of course you are, because it's <laughs> your tenure. Uh, no state did what we did. On the facts, no state did what we did. From marriage equality to minimum wage to the women's rights agenda to LaGuardia Airport, more construction, more development, no state did what we did. We are the progressive capital of the nation. And not just in rhetoric, because we're always good in rhetoric, but in reality, we actually got these things done. And the rest of the country still hasn't caught up. You still don't have a $15 minimum wage. You still don't have the gun law that we have. You still don't have the sexual harassment law that we have. Uh, LaGuardia Airport, first new airport in 50 years in the United States of America. Right, Moynihan Train Hall. Just go look at it to go look at it. They talked about it for 40 years. Got the Senator Moynihan. Uh, we actually got it done. Second Avenue Subway talked about it forever. We got it done. JFK Airport. So, uh, and I believe that is vindicating the concept of government, which, as I mentioned before, vindicates the progressive philosophy. Conservatives win when government fails. Conservatives are basically arguing the progressive theory is impossible because the government is incompetent or counterproductive. Conservatives win when progressives fail. When progressives succeed, Seed, conservatism is defeated. I believe that. Uh, there was a poll released the other day, since we're talking polls, that says uh, I am 10 points ahead of, if the race were between me and Zeldin right now, I w- would be winning by 10 points. Uh, and also said, comparing uh, my governorship to the current governorship, uh, 20 points uh, more uh, uh, approve of my governorship. Uh, I think, you know, why is the Democratic Party having an issue nationwide? And again, it's not just New York. I think this is a national phenomenon. Because the issues did shift to inflation, economy, and crime. Uh, yes, we still have the social issues, abortion, guns, marriage equality, et cetera, afraid of the Supreme Court, which is threatening every civil right and value that we've accomplished in the past 50 years, slight overstatement, but day to day, people are filling their car with gasoline, uh, and they're looking at the price on the pump. They're going to the food checkout and they're paying 25, 50% more for food. And the fear of crime. And those are legitimate issues. And the Democratic Party, 
I used the expression the other day, has been tongue-tied on those issues. And I truly don't understand why. I understand what we're progressive on criminal justice. Yes. But why that means the Democratic Party is afraid to say, uh, I'm going to keep you safe. I don't understand that. Uh, and I think that's unnecessary. And I think if the Democratic Party nationwide had been more forceful and articulate on the crime issue, you would not have seen this disparity. And again, I don't think people are saying you didn't solve the crime problem. I think people are saying you're not acknowledging the crime problem. You're not acknowledging it. And as a matter of fact, you're looking me square in the eye and you're saying, I'm wrong for feeling afraid. That's what you're saying to me. I'm wrong for feeling afraid. Who are you to tell me I'm wrong for feeling afraid? You don't feel afraid because you drive around in a suburban with police officers. <laughs> I'm taking the subway and I feel afraid. And I resent that you tell are telling me I'm wrong to feel afraid. In the time you were governor, look, the, the legislature, Republicans controlled part of it. There were independent Democrats who gained a lot of control. Democrats controlled it. They now have a supermajority in both houses of the legislature. To Katie's question about the state of the party now. Polling seems to pretty clearly indicate that the supermajority, at least, is going to be gone in the uh, state Senate. So that changes some of the political math there. It also means that the Democratic caucus, which will still very likely have a majority, uh, if we don't end up with a new IDC-type situation, will will end up moving further to the left as some moderates lose competitive races. In your view as a uh, progressive who gets things done, as you like to say, is this uh, potentially, is, is, is this a dangerous development for New York? Is this potentially a healthy one? And, you know, as the New York Post, not to constantly come back to them and others, are, are, are drum beating against one party rule as uh, many elections are decided in primaries. Uh, do you see this political reset that appears to be coming is something good or bad, something you bear responsibility for as, as uh, you know, the executive who sort of pushed the direction of the party for many years? First of all, this did not happen when I was governor, right? You're right. I won by large margins and Democrats won uh, by large margins. So, and I'm taking your premise of what you suggest is going to happen on election day, right? And I hope you're wrong that that doesn't happen. But uh, assuming your premise, uh, Democrats didn't lose when I was governor. I didn't lose, and Democrats didn't lose. They picked up seats when I was governor. If Democrats lose seats on Tuesday, then Democrats will have lost seats. Uh, and that's bad for the Democratic Party. Uh, period. You know, the, the, the swing areas, Long Island, 
Westchester, Hudson Valley, uh, they make the difference in a majority. And you can lose Suffolk. You can lose Nassau. By the way, you just lost Nassau County last year. That's why (laughs) this whole conversation, this is not over the past few months. The people told you this last year. So, Governor, you're saying that Democrats didn't lose when you were when you were governor. Are you saying that because you're not at the top of the ticket, there's a large possibility that Democrats are going to lose? No. Harry said, what do you think if the Democrats lose on Tuesday? I think Democrats are going to win. Okay. But if Democrats lose, that would be bad for Democrats. Uh, now, last year, you take the swing, swing areas. Nassau County last year, Laura Curran was county executive of Nassau County, a Democrat. Uh, Todd Kaminsky, the sitting senator, was running for district attorney. Todd Kaminsky loses in Nassau. And Laura Curran loses in Nassau. Laura Curran was very popular. He loses because Todd Kaminsky loses so badly because Nassau was worried about the crime issue. So this whole conversation like, oh, the crime issue dropped from the sky three weeks ago. No, this was signaled a year ago, right? Uh, So it's not that this crime issue hasn't been percolating. I think what happened is it got eclipsed for a while by Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court, which was just a thunderbolt uh, into society. But once that issue subsided somewhat, then crime came back. And on top of that, inflation came back, which is a new issue. But crime has been percolating for years in these areas. Not as intense, but I don't think anyone can say it came out of the blue. I mean, if you were watching, you saw the signs, right? And I am not granting Harry's projection and crystal ball that Democrats uh, lose, especially not in New York. I could see uh, Democrats losing the House nationally. I don't think uh, they lose in New York because. The Republican Party is so out of sync on these basic social issues. You know, we had a Republican governor before, George Pataki. He was a moderate Republican. He was moderate. He was moderate on choice. I don't think he was pro-choice. He may have even been pro-choice. But however he handled it, he was very moderate. You have choice, you have marriage equality, which is now 
I, you know, when I passed marriage equality, it was not that popular. But marriage equality is now 70% nationwide. In New York, it must be 80%, 85%. Guns. Uh, I passed guns. Uh, you know, I'll bet you support for the gun bill is 75%. So I don't see how a Republican wins when they are so fundamentally disconnected from what the constituents believe. Yeah. And, and Andrew, we'll just one final question, because I know you have a lot on your plate, too. You got to head out of here. And, and this is a question and it is a question about you. And, and throughout this conversation, we've heard a lot of the first step is admitting you have a problem, almost like a lot of reflective language. Um, when you were in office, you had this reputation as a hard driving legislator. I guess you said it was the Queens in you. You were a Queens boy. That's how you acted. A lot of other people called you, frankly, an asshole. Other things too, I'm sure, but I guess that that's the word I'll use. Have you reflected on, on on your behavior with other lawmakers, with people in your office, and have you thought maybe when these allegations first emerged, I know the support really wasn't there. Um, have you reflected on how your own behavior might have contributed to this absence of allies, and, and maybe thought, I don't know, moving forward, how you might be different or act differently, or I don't, it's hard to change your personality if that's the core of it. But I, I just wanted to get your take. Yeah. First, uh, I don't know you. I know. We've uh, met, but, you know, I've, you know, it's fine. All right. And you don't know me, right? It's true. Uh, so have I thought about it? The answer is yes. But think about this, because it's not as simplistic as you say. Yeah. Well, why didn't you just play nice? with the assembly and the Senate and all the legislators. Why did they find you difficult? You know why? Because I had a job to do. That's why. Because an executive is different than a legislator. You called me a legislator. I was not a legislator. I was the executive. The role of an executive, be it a mayor, be it a governor, be it a president, is fundamentally different than a legislator's role. The old expression was the legislator who does nothing does nothing wrong. Meaning what? A legislator doesn't like to take tough votes. And if they have to take a tough vote, they'd rather not take the vote. Why? because you offend people. The job of the executive is to get them to take those tough votes because all the important issues are tough votes. Right out of the box, I passed marriage equality. It had just failed because of Democrats because of New York Democrats. And I had a call in each one. This is my first year. And I said, you know what? I'm the titular head of the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party supports marriage equality. And they said, you know what? I don't want to vote for it because in my district, 
It's only 50-50. It's only 60-40. I said, you know what? I hear you. But being a Democrat is not just something you do when it's convenient for you. Uh, It is something that is a core set of beliefs. And I feel strongly about this. And I believe the Democrats in New York feel strongly about this. And I need your vote. And they said, I don't want to vote for it. I just voted against it. And I said, I know. But I need your vote. And I believe this is a core democratic belief. And if you vote against it, I'm going to say, I totally disagree with you. And I think you don't represent core democratic beliefs. Now, that conversation with the legislator is a difficult conversation. You know what the legislator says when they walk out of the office? That Governor Cuomo is a real, uh, I won't use your vulgarity, but (laughs) (laughs) something like that, okay? Uh, I understand why they would say that. But you want to know something? I got every Democrat to vote for marriage equality. Right after they had voted against And then you celebrate marriage equality, and you should celebrate it. And we change the national discourse on the issue. Because when New York passed it, Joe Biden was the vice president. He was asked, like, literally the next day about marriage equality. He said he would support it. They then went to President Obama. He said he would support it. Every governor got a question in their state. Well, why don't we pass? And you celebrated it. You. Oh, but governor, the legislators say you were difficult to deal with. Otherwise, you don't have marriage equality. Otherwise, you don't have $15 minimum wage. Otherwise, you don't have the sexual harassment law. They were all tough votes. Otherwise, you don't have LaGuardia Airport because the community was against it and the legislators were against it because they didn't want the construction noise and the construction traffic. You don't have the gun bill because the Democrats didn't want to vote for the gun bill. Oh, you're, but they found you difficult. Well, I could have been impotent. I could have been one of the club, go along, get along. You don't want to vote for it. Don't worry about it. You know what that is? That's failed government. You know what that is? That's a conservative's dream. That's a conservative's dream. You know what that is? That's gridlock. You know what that is? That's Washington, D.C. We can't pass a bill because we can't get the Democrats lined up. You can't have it both ways. You can't have a strong executive who delivers and gets things done and, by the way, gets reelected and reelected and reelected and is 
has more progressive accomplishments than any governor in modern history, and then turn around and say, you know, the Assembly and the senators uh, thought that you were really difficult. Yes, because it's a difficult job to get government to function. Building the Second Avenue subway, difficult. Getting Moynihan done after 40 years, difficult. Yeah. You want someone to go drinking? Look. <laughs> okay. We have we we really have to go. <laughs> we do, but we appreciate yeah. that. Apologies. Apologies. Okay. We appreciate you coming on. And it's true. I guess, you know, I guess you proved the point of the question. Uh, you, you I won't repeat the vulgarity, but we do appreciate uh, your perspective on that. It's not a perspective. It's a fact. And I'll tell you the other thing I did that you didn't raise. Forget the politicians. Because, yes, uh, uh, and the politicians, frankly, delivered because they got paid to deliver and they had to take a tough vote because they get paid to take a tough vote. I was also tough on the press. And they didn't like it. I, I can vouch and, for this. And I, I'm yeah. so apologetic. We we really do have to be somewhere at 10. It's 9.59 as we're speaking. I very much hope you'll come back on. And I would love to have a conversation with you about the press uh, for, the, for the podcast. Uh, because your thoughts on this are incredibly interesting. Oh, that I would enjoy. But then you can't accuse me of being. Then you can't accuse me of being tough on the press, Harris. <laughs> Th- thank you so much for for taking the time, and uh, we we appreciate it. And hopefully, we'll we'll speak in this forum again. Thank you very much. Important important discussion, important issues, and uh, thank you for the opportunity. FAQ. This has been FAQ NYC. We're a part of the city. A nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc/slash donate if you'd like to pitch in. We are headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research, and are a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Critics, and Artists. Find it all at popula.com. Our hosts this episode were Christina Greer, Katie Honan, and Harry Siegel, who's also our executive producer. I'm our engineer, Adam Kimera. Special thanks to our guest this episode, Andrew Cuomo. And thank you, listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, and we'll be back soon with more.